You know, it's very unnerving to watch all your yesterdays flashing before your eyes like that. And there have been a lot of yesterdays because I've spent more than a quarter of this century sitting here talking about films. I've enjoyed it immensely and I hope that at least some of the time you have too. So as I head off for pastures new, now it's okay. Now you can let the tears flow unchecked. I'll probably shed a couple myself as, for the very last time, I bow myself out to the accompaniment of Billy Taylor and the best theme tune on television. My thanks to you for watching and to all the talented people who have, over the years, made this a pretty damn good programme. Goodbye. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. And on today's episode, I am going to be taking a look at the British Film Institute's recent release of Letter to Brezhnev. And as well, I'll be taking a look back at the year so far. It's going to be a slightly shorter episode than normal. I am consciously aware of the fact that I haven't put anything out since the Easy Rider episode. And I'm about to go on holiday for a few weeks, so I wanted to do something before I went also, just to make reference to the fact that over the past couple of days, it's come to be that the film critic Barry Norman has tragically passed away. Um, I used to really, uh, when I was a child, used to watch um, his film series. Uh, he was a critic who I found to be um, thoroughly engaging. He seemed to lack the pretense that so many of them had now. And... Um, it was a very sad to see. I've been back over on YouTube the past few days looking at some of his um, reviews and interviews and, uh, yeah, a sad loss to cinema. On, on a, another note, it's always kind of... It always used to amuse me that no matter what my year it was, my father would always refer to it as Film 87. I don't know why 1987 had such particular significance for my father, but even if it was 1993, 1994, ever, he would still say, oh, Film 87 is on Tom. So, uh, yeah, very sad to hear that news, but, um, yeah, definitely someone who I think uh, left a gift to film criticism. So on with this year then. So... Here we are uh, at the beginning of July, and to be honest, I can't really recall in recent memory a year for film being so uninspiring. I think the first issue that I'm having is simply going to the cinema is beginning to feel more like a chore than it is a pleasure. The cost has gone through the roof, with the average price in Manchester now being £9 a film. And you really have to think about what does that £9 get you. My last visit to the Printworks in Manchester, which for some reason um, has been forced to change from the Odeon to view, was not exactly a pleasurable experience. The sound was way too low. I had a chorus of popcorn chomping idiots behind me and the actual screen was being incorrectly projected with the corners of the image clipping the curtains at the side. And of course, this was prefaced by 30 minutes of ad adverts. The experience was frankly not worth £9. I have Sky, I have Love Film, I have Netflix and I have Amazon Prime. And with the window between theatrical and home release being so short now, in some case a matter of six weeks, I find myself waiting for films to come out on the home video market where I can watch them in my own home without the distractions of going to the cinema. And of course there is the films themselves. This year has not been good for films. And I'm going to start with my current favourites. And by far in advance, the best film I have seen all year is Jane Mangold's 
Logan. Hugh Jackman's song song sorry. Hugh Jackman's swan song to the Wolverine character is the X-Men film I have wanted for years. Brutal, bloody, and never falling into the trap of believing bigger is better, Logan feels like a Sam Peckinpah film made independently from a meddling studio. The chemistry between Daphne Keane as Wolverine Jr. and Jackman is exhilarating. In one scene in particular, I was quite taken with the way Wolverine Jr. looked on as Wolverine Sr. punched a car with frustrations as his powers were on the wane. Indeed, in Logan, the character is a semi-tragic figure. He is far more vulnerable than we have ever seen him, and despite his heroics, he is a washed-up shadow of his former self. Rarely do superhero films pay such attention to character as they do here. The last, the most notable example I can think of is probably the original Superman film. But here, Mangol fuses the Western and the Road movie, these iconic genres of American cinema, and repackages them into a franchise film that is a prime example of how the superhero film does not need to rely on destroyed cities and wall-to-wall CGI to engage its audiences. And Logan, by its title alone, is a statement of intent. It's about character, and the journey has actual weight and a degree of moral complexity to it. And indeed, it seems critics and audiences have really taken the film to heart. Logan has been the biggest of the Wolverine spin-offs, and who knew that making an adult, character-driven superhero films that they would reap such fine rewards? Well, sadly, it's the end of the road for this particular Wolverine, but I can only hope that the studios have taken note. And yes, I know there is room for fun in superhero films, and indeed, I feel that Netflix has become the home of the real kind of gritty interesting superhero narratives but i want more films like logan which won't be aged with the ropey cgi and instead be remembered for the characters themselves paul verhoeven's l was not quite the masterpiece i was hoping for isabella hubert's performance i believe levitated the film to something more than the possible trashy skin the film was wrapped up in i was going to review it along with kelly reichardt's certain women but as life got in the way and I was actually going to go back to the film when I read an article in The Guardian by someone called Bashir who, whose deranged critique of Elle almost prompted me to read it out here word for word and it is kind of indicative of how I feel films are being talked about at present. We don't talk about the aesthetics of film anymore. We don't have the likes of André Bazin forensically analysing mise-en-scene and camera movement in the work of Jean Renoir. Instead, it's been replaced with essay after essay on the merits of a given film and its apparent message it contains. Now, I liked Elle as a trashy thriller. It made me laugh sometimes at the crassness of its jokes. And I will provide a link into the show notes to this article because essentially... She accuses anyone of liking this film as being a rape apologist. And no, I am not a rape apologist. And I don't think anyone who likes this film is. I think the word is context. And actually, L does push a lot of buttons. And certainly, I can see why it's con- controversial. But ultimately, 
I think that's what films should do. I think in certain cases, especially with Paul Verhoeven, I want them to push buttons. I want them to go places that other films don't. I don't want to remain in the safe space when I go to the cinema. And certainly Elle did do that to some degree. Now, the other film everyone has been going on about, of course, is Wonder Woman. Now, DC have struggled with superhero films of light. The bafflingly dull Dawn of Justice and the frankly terrible Suicide Squad have not done anything for me. So along comes Wonder Woman, of course, directed by a woman. And the question I suppose I should be asking, I haven't actually seen it yet, is, is the film any good? Well, who cares if the film's any good or not? Because what's important is that it has a woman in it. It's the film that's going to change Hollywood. It's going to empower women. It's an up yours to Donald Trump. No, actually, hang on a minute. No, it's not anything like that. It's actually sexist because she's semi-naked all the time. She's merely the embodiment of male gaze. Let's all argue about the merits of female-only screenings. Actually, in fact, don't even go and watch the film because Gal Gadot was in the Israeli Defence Forces. So clearly she's the wrong woman to be in this male-driven film anyway. And on and on and on it goes. What you don't seem to hear is anyone talking about the actual merits of the film. Was it any good? Gender politics aside. Well, that doesn't even seem to be of any interest. Now, call me old-fashioned, but I want to talk about editing, shots, scores and the crafts of filmmaking. Which brings me on to Moonlight, which was this year's Virtue Fest. Now, Moonlight did absolutely nothing for me. I found it to be ridiculously preachy, dull, and frankly, unengaging. But that wasn't the point. It's about a gay black man, and that's all that matters. Well, it does that matter to me. Call me greedy, but I want the film to be more than just a few ideas and virtue signaling. I want an engaging cinematic experience. The film's depiction of gay is so conservative, it's actually almost laughable. And it's a film that's supposed to make you feel good about yourself. You're supposed to feel proud that you can go and watch a film about a black gay man. But let's be honest, this film is so conservative, it is ridiculous. There's nothing in here that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. You're not going to go and see two men going at it because... Obviously, the film understands that the people who want to go and watch this film don't want to see that. They just want to virtue signal about the fact that they can sit through a film about a gay black man. I absolutely hated it. It is the byproduct of the Oscars So White backlash. And if, if, and if this type of nonsense is going to be the future of intelligent, independent filmmaking, then God help us all. Get Out was another film that left me baffled. The Stepford Wife does race. It was neither scary, funny or original. And yes, the racial element does provide a certain tension. But ultimately, the film is undone by a lazy script, by the numbers direction and a running time that is far too long to sustain any dramatic impetus. My solace has been found on Netflix and Amazon Prime. My box set series addiction has waned in recent years, but with what's going on in cinema at the moment, I found myself increasingly having to rely on television to get my cinematic fix. Now, I want to go to the cinema, I really do, but I don't want to pay £9 to listen to some idiot scoff food in my ear watching a film that isn't too low and that has little or no cinematic appeal. 
Solace may come in the form of Dunkirk. Now, I don't want to fetishize film, but I want a reason to go to the cinema. I want a cinematic experience. And yes, I'm old fashioned, so a 70mm epic war film might just be the tonic. But overall, 2017 has proved something of a slog for me. It may improve, and yes, there's a few films I do need to get through. However, at the moment, this is going to be on course, I believe, to be one of the worst film years in recent memory. I think somebody's just flung themselves onto the ball. Will you? Yeah! Will you? Yeah, you hear me! I'll chew on, woman! Come down close to me. now i mentioned on the very first episode of the 24 frames cast my feelings on the 80s it seemed a slightly horrific decade to me. My mum had a perm that made her hair look like Medusa. And then I was, of course, being taken out of school early due to a toxic cloud from Chernobyl. I remember everyone being pissed off. Watching Crystal Palace versus Hull, I can remember being witness to an impromptu poll tax riot at half time and asking my father why Margaret Thatcher was a cunt. It was not my decade, that was the 90s. I don't like 80s music, I hate Top Gun, and the fashion was truly terrible. As such, I don't tend to watch many films from the 80s, apart from the obvious classics like Commando. However, I was intrigued with the recent BFI release of Chris Bernard's Letter to Brezhnev. I'd only heard good things about the film, and given the current relations with Russia and the fact that the country seems to be in terminal decline, I thought it was time to catch up with it. The film revolves around two friends, Elaine, played by Alexander Pig, and Teresa, by Marjorie Clark, who head out into Liverpool on a night and bump into two Russian sailors, Peter, played by Peter Thurf, and Sergei, played by Alfred Molina. The group soon hits it off. Teresa and Sergei agree to have a one night of passion, whilst Elaine and Peter find a deeper connection. The next day, Peter must get back on his boat and head back to Russia. Smitten, Elaine cannot bear to live without her man, and after writing the titular letter to Brezhnev, she is invited to Russia and hopefully marry Peter. Her parents and the government don't want her to go, and there may well be something more to Peter than perhaps she likes to think. But should she just throw caution to the wind and leave Thatcher's blighted Britain behind? Letter to Brezhnev is a time capsule of a film you cannot ignore its politics. Made at the height of the Cold War and Margaret Thatcher's vision for Britain was firmly in place. Letter to Brezhnev, I would wager on its release, offered a fairly damning indictment of the time and to a degree one we can recognise today. We are in the seventh year of government austerity. 
marketed as a kind of national cause to get Britain back on financial track, it has instead been a savage assault on the public sector. From nurses to mental health, the government has systematically diverted funds from the most needy to line the pockets of those at the top. Letter to Brezhnev shows us their past and how this effect can have on the individual. In the case of Theresa and Lane, Thatcher's Britain is an endless cycle of miserable jobs. In the case of Theresa, she has to literally pull the intestines out of chickens for a living, where Elaine seems to rely on doll money. This is a life without a great deal to actually look forward to, and instead they spend their free time in crap bars and having casual sex. Neither Theresa or Elaine appear to have any long-term relationships, and there is a certain nihilism to their existence. They very much just simply live in the moment from one thing to the next. When we do see friends' relationships, they are dysfunctional to say the least. Elaine even admits to one of her so-called friends, or a frenemy I think would be a better description, that she was sleeping with the girl's boyfriends, who is himself a total idiot. The conservative's obsession with the family unit, marriage, God and wholesomeness is firmly rejected in Letter to Brezhnev. It reminded me of one of the angry young films of angry young men films, sorry, of the British New Wave, in particular Saturday night and Sunday morning, of course, with a gender reversal going on. And indeed it is very much the youth who tend to feel the effects of isolation and hopelessness when the economic instruments of the state are more interested in rampant individualism. There is no light at the end of these tunnels for these girls. They work in craps jobs to merely survive one day to the next. So into this void, we are given a chance perhaps for a better life for Teresa when the pair bump into Peter and Sergei. What's interesting here is Peter and Sergei are not presented as mere pawns in a faceless communist society. They go against the narrative. They are funny and outgoing and charming. In short, they are different from the local men and ladies and trees and normally hang around with. The connection between Theresa and Peter clearly transcends any form of politics. I think it's a bold move by writer Frank Clark, whose sister was played by, whose sister Margie was obviously playing Elaine. The Russians here are not the enemy. The link between common people, young people in particular, is that they have concerns with the personal, not ideology. The Russians are not the enemy here, there is a link between young people, and they are interested in the personal, not the ideology of either side. The West is no form of utopia for Elaine. She doesn't benefit from the capitalist system, it doesn't provide her with a pathway to riches, home ownership and material gain. It keeps her in a city that constrains her in every possible way. And Peter does not seem overly downtrodden either. He goes to great lengths to dispel the many myths of the communist system, the bread cues and the lack of freedom and whatnot. And crucially for Elaine, Peter represents a way out of her world, an escape, albeit one that might prove to be folly. I perhaps did not fully buy into the fact that you could fall in love in a few hours just before Peter departs back to Russia, but I did fully understand the notion that Elaine could fall in love with the idea of a better life. The film's final third does not contain the excitement and zest of the preceding two. The titular letter to Brezhnev sets in motion a chain of events with Elaine being invited to meet up with Peter and move to Russia. She becomes something of a local celebrity, albeit an unwitting pawn in the political game. A government minister tries to talk her out of it. Clearly quite posh, he is not as I expected in the film. Rather than being pompous and demeaning, he clearly cares about Elaine.
yet he cannot offer anything of an alternative that she has an, that she doesn't have an answer to. Her life is so drab and boring. What really would be there to lose and what would there be to keep her in Liverpool? Now, I'm not going to spoil what happens, obviously. But one of the other things that really struck me about Letter to Brezhnev was how it looked. This is not a picture postcard of Liverpool. Indeed, visually, the film reminded me of the third man, an old man out, with long shadows being cast down wet, cobbled streets. Carol Reed's films took place in two post-war cities, destroyed and damaged by conflict. The very fact that Liverpool reminded me of such films is a rather damning indictment of just how shoddy the city looks in the film, and having been there many times, Liverpool city centre is certainly far from ugly or depressing. But this film is a love story, pure and simple, and for me it works. You sympathise with Elaine and Theresa, all the characters have a depth and pathos I found myself easily being able to empathise with the situation. Yes, it does seem a little implausible, but it's a film, a fancy born of economic hardships and hopelessness. And despite the film's obvious 80s iconography from the haircuts and the terrible clothes, I didn't feel it had really dated per se. In fact, it seemed more relevant than ever. With vast amounts of Britons relying on food banks and low wages, there is a growing sense, I feel, in this country that people are sick of the status quo. It hasn't manifested itself in either party, major political party, sorry, being elected to power, and the effects on the young people are all to see. I was recently out flying my drone when a group of young people came over and started talking to me. They spoke of their interest in photography and films and asked me what I was doing. And the conversation went back and forth until I got round to asking them what they wanted to do. Their answers were quite telling. None of them would be able to afford to go to university. And one of the girls actually said that upon finishing her A-levels, she needed to get a job, any job in fact, to support her mother who was disabled and her two sisters. And Letter to Brezhnev, I feel, is a, to a degree a film about these young people. It's a story of people wanting a better life and living in a world where aspiration is being crushed by reality. As a film, it might not be a classic of British cinema. However, it is funny, charming and moving. And the final shot of Teresa, her brashy exterior, crumbles to reveal a sweet-natured person resigned to the humdrum life of Liverpool really hit home. Yet, there is a sense of hope to let her to Brezhnev. And it does have a sense of humour which I feel is very unique to the city and the time, and the fact that I was being reminded of Carol Reed's direction can only be a good thing. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Many thanks for listening. I will be back um, in a few weeks once I've come come back from holiday. I'm taking quite a lot of reading material um, with me on this trip, so I can hopefully come back and we'll be able to kind of put something out quite soon. So many thanks for listening. Let me know what you think, and I will be in contact soon. Many thanks. Bye.